As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Great delight to be joined by N.T. Wright again for today's edition of the show. Um, And we're looking at issues around women and gender today, and we're fully aware that we're both two men (laughs) talking to issues around uh, women and gender, but uh, lots of people want to to have your thoughts, especially on the biblical questions uh, in the way this interacts with Scripture, Tom. Now, uh, right at the top, I'm going to point people back to one of our early episodes of the Ask Anti Write Anything podcast. Number six uh, is titled Female Church Leadership, Complementarity and Marriage. And we did something of a deep dive, actually, into one particularly um, uh, one particular passage, First Timothy 2, uh, which has often been used uh, by many to, to suggest that there's a complementarian or um, view that uh, only men should be leaders or teachers in churches and and why you don't think that's uh, the correct reading of that particular passage and and you you've spoken in many contexts about your uh, affirmation of women in church leadership roles and preaching and so on um and some of the questions we've got here will will want to dig into that in in different ways as well um, but let's talk about um the concept of gender and uh joy in virginia says um my question is, uh, it seems that we see gender roles democratized in the Bible. Other than roles in the church, women leadership, how does the Bible view gender? Joy goes on to say, of course, there's the biological differences, but I'm confused as to how to view biblical manhood and womanhood. In short, what differentiates a man and woman other than biology? The question is more on my mind these days as I'm raising two young girls and we're being faced head on with gender identity in schools and churches in my area. And I'm trying to differentiate between cultural versus biblical views on this issue. Yeah, well, <clears throat> Joy, I wish you joy with this question. Um, this is a very strange and awkward moment in our culture, in Western culture, American, British, European and satellites out beyond. Actually, there are many parts of the world where this isn't a question at all, because it's fairly obvious to many people in traditional communities around other parts of the world that men and women are different and do different things and uh, have different roles, etc. But it's this is a problem for us. And it's partly because of a big cultural shift 
within Western modernity, post-enlightenment, <clears throat> there was always the push to say that men and women are basically identical. And yeah, they have some different biological functions, but that's irrelevant. They are identical. So we have the great movement for women getting the vote, which isn't that long ago, historically speaking. We have the great movement for women being allowed to, to be part of the great universities, um, which we, we celebrate now. And it's hard looking back to think, we didn't do that. What was that coming from? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But all of that has been equality, identity, equality, identity. But then with postmodernity, as people have seen the dangers in that homogeneity, suddenly, and this has been very sudden in the last 25, 30 years in Western culture, the emphasis has been on this blessed word identity. A friend of mine looked up in the Cambridge University online library, uh, the word identity in book titles, and it suddenly spiked in the early 1990s and has continued up there. It wasn't an issue until then. So we should avoid being blown off course by something that's very new like this, because it's a result of a kind of a backlash from all that time of being told we're identical, we're just the same, we do the same stuff. Suddenly to being told, no, 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 men and women have very different identities. And then the race is on, how do you define that? And my goodness, that's difficult. Because after all the years of equality and identity, suddenly to be told, no, femininity means this, or being a woman means this, or being a girl means this, masculinity, male, boy, etc. And that's where great confusion comes in. And that's why tragically at the moment, both gender roles and sexual expression of gender roles is a total confused state. In the, so we shouldn't be surprised that this is a difficult place to stand right now. And as I've often said, Romans 8 is about the world groaning in travail, the church groaning in the middle of the world groaning, and God's spirit groaning within the church, within the world. It seems to me that we in the church are having a big struggle because we are called to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain, in order that God's spirit may be groaning within us, in order that God's new creation may come about. So don't be surprised that we have to wrestle with this one and that we can't necessarily good, get straight good pat answers. But biblically speaking, men and women are different. And the biological differences clearly go with differences as it were all the way down. Now, having said that, psychologically, what little I know about this, and I'm not a specialist, there are certain kinds of brain formations, emotion formations, which seem to be more normal among men and others which seem to be more normal among women. And if one doubts this, you just have to go into a newsagent and look at the magazine section, where there are men's magazines and women's magazines. And if there wasn't at least some obviousness about that, those magazines would go out of business. But as we all, I think, now know, there is very considerable overlap so that in terms of psychology and mental processes and emotional life, etc., whether you do it in Myers-Briggs patterns or Enneagrams or whatever, yes, there are some constants, but there is a great deal of overlap. So we have to be very, very careful. And at precisely that point, it seems to be very cruel to say to young children, to pre-puberty children or even to teenagers, uh, anything about, oh, never mind um, what they said at your birth, you now have to choose what you want to be. I'm trailing my coat here on a very contentious issue at the moment, but I actually believe this quite strongly, 
that we are made male or female and that we have to figure out in our different cultures how that is going to work. I know that there is a tiny minority for whom at birth it is actually a matter of, of, of things not being clear, things being indistinct. I've had friends who've had children in that position and that's a very sensitive and delicate issue. But almost always it is clear this is a boy, this is a girl, and then it's a question of how in the society they are then to live. And then the biblical commands and shaping of family life, of societal life, takes place within that. And there are female leaders in some parts of the Old Testament, just as there are female leaders in some parts of the New Testament. And uh, so this then goes on into leadership questions. But the basic thing, I think, ought to be clear. Question from Ivy in Nebraska asks us sort of almost to follow up this, but um, how would you explain what it means to be a female image bearer of God? As a woman and mother of all girls, I'm really trying to deeply and rightly understand this. And here's, here's some background to Ivy's situation. Um, says, my most formative years as a Christian have been and still are in what would be considered a complementarian church. And for those who aren't familiar with that phraseology i suppose a church that essentially believes in a division of um roles within church uh, that men should take preaching and leading roles and, and that isn't something women should take now um again we, we can talk about that but um ivy goes on to say we've dearly loved it and its people for 15 years now i've had to reckon though with how i felt limited in what i can do with gifts god's given me because i'm female in a context where emphasis has often been placed on the development of male leaders um, there seem to be many ideas about what it means to be female or feminine, but very few explanations that are truly compelling. I realise I'm asking two men this question, but I do greatly appreciate any insight and encouragement you have to offer. Yeah, I mean, clearly, as I've said, the ideas of what it means to be male and what it means to be female are, are very much culturally conditioned. And if one went round the world uh, as objectively as one could, one would find many, many different views. And because this connects very deeply to how we know ourselves inside, as it were, we can be very defensive and anxious and nervous if people start playing around with these. And, and no doubt we're all subject to that. In terms of image bearing, it's quite clear in the Bible that men and women, both and together, reflect the image of God. Let's be clear about what the image of God is all about. Uh, God desires to work in the world through human beings, and God intends that the worship of all creation should be reflected back to him through human beings. So humans are like an angled mirror with God reflecting out into the world through us in his love and generosity and his stewardship, his looking after creation, and his working with the grain of creation to bring it to the new creation he has in mind. And then with that same angled mirror, where we as humans take the inarticulate worship of everything from the stars and the planets to the trees and the flowers, and turning it into articulate praise of God the creator. Now this image bearing this is therefore something which every single human being can and should be doing and which men and women by being men and being women together different but in that sense complementary should be doing together 
from that point of view, I resent the way the word complementarian has been used <laughs> to mean women go and make the tea, men are in charge here. Um, that, that's not the complementarity that I see in scripture. And so I think we need to recapture that sense of neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, all are one in Messiah Jesus, Galatians 3.28. The whole passage, 26 to 29, actually needs to be brought in there. But then, um, yes, there are many ideas about what it means to be female or feminine. And so many of them are culturally conditioned so that people assume that if this is a little girl, she will be interested in playing with this kind of toy, doing this sort of thing. And many little girls are, but many little girls aren't. Just as you can't assume that boys will necessarily want to do the sort of things that the boys you grew up with and always did or whatever. However, that doesn't mean that there is a total gender fluidity. Rather, it means that we're all very different characters and we have to explore what that's going to mean wisely and sensitively within our respective cultures. But I don't think the Bible gives us necessarily more specific guidelines mm. than that. Mm. I mean, I mean, Ivy's question obviously comes from this place of feeling that she has gifts to offer, which yeah. she can't offer in the church context that does take this complementarian view. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and she's sort of trying to work out, is that because I have... Is it true that, that as a female image bearer of God, I, 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 there's only certain types of ways in which I can reflect that worship back to God? Um, or, or would you say to Ivy, no, that's not a, a, a correct way of thinking about it? No, I, I, I think in terms of the giftedness um, that Ivy is frustrated about, I have met this again and again. When I was Bishop of Durham, I would uh, meet the people who were training for ordination before I ordained them. And again and again, the women in that cohort would tell me about the years, sometimes decades, that they knew deep inside them that they were called to ministry and would pray and struggle about this. And finally, when the church changed its mind on this in the early 1990s, and, or when their particular church changed its mind, phew, I can now go ahead. And some of those people, some of the best people I ordained, um, wonderfully gifted and finally phew the church was releasing those gifts and honoring them um, of course there are muddles and problems on the way there's muddles and problems with everything on the way but that that's really really important but the image bearing this is something which is common to all of us as humans we are all to reflect God's love and stewardship into the world we are all to reflect the worship of creation back to God um, whether male or female whether young or old adult or child that's pretty clear. What what would be your advice then on a practical level? I wonder, Tom, to to someone who finds himself in a in in a church community as Ivy does that she says we dearly love it and its people and have for fifteen years, but find themselves butting up against yeah, this yeah. issue. Do it. What what what's the right thing to do? Is it to jump That's ship? A real problem because because I believe passionately in the unity of the church and regret that we don't see it in practice and that we see a more and more vociferous western church uh, dividing on all sorts of issues you do your thing we do our thing they do their thing whatever and that's a tragedy that no wonder the world doesn't take us seriously because we're not living as a community and working out these differences so how can we be setting an example to the rest of the world about living as a community and working out differences that's what we the church should be doing and we're not so i would want to say that somebody in that position should get together with even if it's one or two or three other like-minded people and pray for the direction of the church and then wisely, non-angrily 
talk to the leaders of the church about how scripture goes this way and there um, and about how it seems that we are being um, sidelined and mm. the giftedness mm. which we have isn't in fact being used sometimes alas that does mean that people find themselves eventually being squeezed out we don't want people asking those questions here you better go down the road they'll like you down there that's always tragic tra tragic when it happens sometimes that seems to be the only way mm. Um, I hate it when I see any sort of splits, but sometimes if a church has set itself up in a particular narrow box, then sooner or later people are going to need to break out of that. Um, and that has been true sadly again and again in church history. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' death, resurrection and return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' death, resurrection and return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. Thank you. I mean, obviously, you're, you're talking, obviously, from the perspective of someone who, who does take that, um, to put a label on it, egalitarian perspective on uh, on these issues. Now, there are... Uh, well, you, you, you don't like that. I don't like that label, no. I know, I know, because it, it's it's too too brutal a label, I understand. Uh, but 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 coming to this, um, you know, talking about different church networks and denominations that do take different views on this, um, someone in Coventry, I won't actually give their name because uh, it might, <laughs> might be able to pinpoint who they are, given that they say, I grew up in an evangelical New Frontiers background, which had a male leadership policy. But I, as well as my denomination, have been slowly coming around to the biblical reasoning for female preaching, including from your arguments on this very podcast. However, in my circles, a distinction is made between the role of preaching and teaching and church governance, i.e. eldership, from 1 Timothy 3, with the latter still seen as male only. But this person wants to know uh, specifically, why did Jesus appoint 12 men? to be the first disciples slash apostles. If God meant women and men to have the same church leadership roles, why did he not include at least one woman in the 12? And to preempt your answer, I don't buy the idea that it wouldn't have flown in patriarchal Jewish culture. Jesus did lots of shocking things to undermine the patriarchy. I'm sure he could have appointed a few female apostles if he'd wanted. And I think because it, it relates to this, let me just also bring Mary's um, question. She's in New York and says... Um, my question is also on First Timothy 3. Paul exhorts that pastors must have only one wife. The personal pronouns that follow are always male. It is the one scriptural passage that sticks for me in regards to women in pastoral or elder positions. Am I missing some history here or some language that would open this up to women along with men? 
uh, without knowing any more, it appears that women aren't to be the head of a church body. So both this person in Coventry and Mary are asking, okay, we know that, you know, uh, people are changing their perspectives. Maybe some, some, uh, church networks are opening up to women preaching and teaching but they still see that as different to this idea of uh, the, those who have governance and that's yeah, the issue. Yeah. let me just put one thing to one side which is that blessed word head okay. um, th- there are passages about headship um, for instance first corinthians 11 verses 2 and following which is a very tricky passage and i think almost all commentators agree that whatever view you take, it's a very strange and difficult passage. And some people think Paul is quoting something that the Corinthians have said, which he does elsewhere in the letter, in order then to refute it or modify it or whatever. So that's that's a tricky passage already. And then there's Ephesians chapter 5, where the husband is the head of the wife and so on, which is specifically about marriage, not about church leadership. And that, that I think that's really, really important because people have taken the idea of headship from those passages and have then transplanted them onto other passages about, about church ministry and leadership. In terms of 1 Timothy 3, I've always been struck by the fact that in verse 11, having talked about um, uh, the, the, the bishops or elders or whatever we're going to translate them and about the deacons, then uh, in verse 11, he says the women likewise must be must be holy. Well, you can translate the, the different words differently, not slanderers, etc., and must be faithful in all things. And it looks as though including the women in verse 11 doesn't just mean the women folk in the church. He's talking throughout this passage about leadership in the church. And I think that is quite clear that in verse 11, um, if there are women in leadership positions, they too must learn how to behave and be good examples of what being a Christian is all about. So I'm not convinced that this passage actually does marginalize women. Obviously, at the time, I don't know when First Timothy was written. Um, I argued in my biography of Paul that if First Timothy was indeed by Paul, it must be written sometime after the time when he was um, uh, in Rome as at the end of Acts 28 because the personalia and the travel details don't seem to fit with the narrative of Acts and the narrative we can construct from the other letters. So I don't know when it's written. It's quite possible it was written to the church in Ephesus, which was actually um, uh, a very uh, in a very female-oriented culture. So it's kind of an interesting thing where the, the male leadership in the church um, has to make its way in that context. Um, that's something we talked about, I think, in that previous podcast that you mentioned when we were talking about mm. First Timothy yes, 2. We went into um, some detail on that. But but yeah, this First Timothy 3 issue is 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 yes. this issue of, it does appear on, on the yeah. face of it to su- suggest that, yes, whether you call them Bishop Elder or whatever, um, they, they are talking about men and having only one wife. And then sure, as, sure. as this person says, the, the rest of the references seem to be towards men um, equally. Except for verse 11, that's the point. Except for verse 11, right, and, and it, yes. It, it, seems to me, um, it, it seems to me that what's going on then is uh, an assumption that in the church at the moment, they are mostly male leaders, certainly, the, the church to which Paul is writing or to which, in which Timothy is involved, um, because that does seem to have been the majority at the time. However, 
the clear signs are in Romans 16, particularly well-known passage, that um, there are apostles in the church who are female. Junior is a celebrated case in Romans 16. There's been a lot of argument about that. But now the scholars absolutely agreed that Junior is female and she is an apostle, which means she is one of those who saw the risen Jesus and is thereby commissioned, constituted as that first generation of primary witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and of course, the, the, the standing example there, and this is the answer to the question about um, why did Jesus choose 12 male apostles? The answer to that is because this was the beginning of the new Israel. And so like the 12 patriarchs, um, these are, as it were, the patriarchs of the renewed or reconstituted people of God, with Jesus himself not being one of the 12, but the one who calls them into existence, which is interesting in itself. But then... With the resurrection stories, the person who is commissioned to be the very first person to tell other people that Jesus is raised from the dead and he is ascending to be the Lord of the world is Mary Magdalene. It would have been perfectly easy for Jesus to say, or for the evangelists writing up the story to say, that Jesus had said to Mary, oh, Mary, you happen to be here, but please will you go and get Peter because I've got something to tell him because he's got to be the one to tell this news, obviously. No, Jesus says to Mary, go and tell my brothers. I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. In other words, Mary Magdalene, as many Roman Catholic theologians have recognized, is the apostle to the apostles. Mm. She is the one, the very first one to do the primary Christian witness. All other Christian ministry flows from the declaration that the crucified Jesus is raised from the dead and is now the Lord of the world. Mary is the first one to be given that commission. She I think quite deliberately on Jesus' part, on God's part, breaks the mold from now on, now that the old world has ended with the cross and the new world has been launched with the resurrection. From now on, we are a cheerful mix of men and women commissioned to a wide variety of tasks in the service of the gospel. Helpful answers. I, I think, I think, I mean, and, and yes, so specifically with respect to that the issue that frequently comes up, you know, Jesus selected 12 men as his uh, disciples you see that as much more symbolic in, in order to reflect that story of Israel than necessarily being determined by the patriarchal culture and Jesus wasn't going to sort of absolutely upset and, that. And the, 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 our modern language about patriarchal culture is very broad brush and actually there are many um, movements of, of sort of feminist liberation in the first century um, Bruce Winter wrote a very interesting book on, on that. Um, in the Roman world, there were many women who were um, very independent. And Paul indeed entrusts the letter to the Romans to a lady who looks as if she is herself an independent businesswoman, um, Phoebe, who goes to Rome with the letter and presumably will be the one not only to deliver it, but to read it out and not only to read it out, but actually maybe to explain it. That's one of the extraordinary things that maybe the first person ever to do an exposition of the letter to the Romans was an independent businesswoman from Kenkrei, the uh, eastern port of Corinth. We've got one more can of worms to open up before we finish this episode, <laughs> Tom. Um, and you've yeah, and and I think it's worth opening this up because because you you did differentiate just a little earlier on between the headship issue that's yep. referring to marriage and we shouldn't necessarily import that to church leadership roles and so on. Um, but, but I would be interested to know what your view is on that when it comes to marriage. I mean, Eric in Texas asks a question along these lines when it comes to marriage and says, 
Um, my question is about the so-called complementarian versus egalitarian view between a husband and a wife. I've grown up with the complementarian view, but recently came to see that I was treating my wife in a manner I wouldn't want to be treated in the same position. I'm now thinking that maybe both sides missed the point in trying to enforce conservative versus progressive norms and rather arguing about labels. We should be genuinely trying to put ourselves in the other person's shoes to see how they feel on the other side. Uh, and goes on to say, I look at Proverbs 31, and rather than the model of quiet domesticity, I see a strong female entrepreneur who basically finances her husband's entry into local politics through the profits of her businesses. Essentially, uh, fulfilling her God-given potential enables the husband to achieve his, and the two together achieve more than either could on their own. Now, is that a correct interpretation of that passage? And and how radical was this passage for the ancient world? And, and what are your views, I suppose, in this specific issue of marriage on the complementarian versus egalitarian? egalitarian debate i, I that's, a, that's a great way of putting the question and uh, again i i wish we could get away from those labels because complementarian and egalitarian emerge out of that modernist perspective that says uh, there we are uh, the egalitarian we're all the same and the complementarian has this absolute fixed roles that you stick in that role and that's it and those roles very much come out of bits and pieces of modern Western culture, which actually vary whether you're in Texas, as this questioner is, or whether you're in Scotland, or whether you're in Russia, or whether you're in South Africa, whatever. Um, different cultures have developed different ways of handling the male-female thing. And because it's been such a sensitive issue, and because we are now horribly aware of abuse within the home, and it isn't sadly always um, male on female abuse it's sometimes female on male and sometimes it gets gets very murky and very muddled and clearly any sort of violence any sort of ill treatment any sort of um, dismissive behavior uh, should be ruled out from the start and it seems to me that husbands and wives I speak to myself as somebody who's been married for 49 years we need to read and reread Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 um, Colossians um, three and four, about being kind, about being forgiving, about being loving, about being supportive, etc. Those are very basic Christian standards. And if we use a particular ideology about maleness and femaleness as a way of avoiding the biblical commands to kindness and gentleness and sensitivity and tenderheartedness and forgiving one another, then woe betide us, we are asking for trouble here and hereafter. And so I totally agree with what Eric says about trying to enforce conservative versus progressive norms. This gets bundled up, as you will all know, with modern American culture, the great cultural divide, where it looks as if you're either all in one direction or you're all in the other direction. I was saying this in a previous podcast. This is just radically unhelpful. So back to Proverbs 31, which is an amazing passage. And you're absolutely right. It does look as if the, the, the wife is able to manage the household, is able to run independent businesses and enable her husband then to get on with uh, his particular career and vocation. And I don't know how radical that was in the ancient world. I'm not an expert on that. I would like to look up some commentaries on Proverbs and see, but the last time I looked at a commentary on Proverbs, it didn't actually help me answer that question. But certainly, um, the ancient world knew of plenty of women who were able to do independent things like that. There are some of them in the Bible as well. And the idea that it's only in the very modern world 
that women have been able to do things independently and run businesses and so on. This is simply a, a modernist rant. It's a bit of smokescreen, a way of saying we can discount everything before. Of course, they made mistakes in the past, but there were many very independent-minded women. And just as in my country, we look back um, to people like uh, Queen Elizabeth I in the second half of the 16th century, um, a very independent-minded and very powerful leader who held the country together at a very difficult time. And, and there have been many, many such in most cultures throughout history. So um, it seems to me that the, the wider complementarian versus egalitarian debate really needs to be parked so that we can talk about the actual issues of being male and female mm. and, and struggle with that as we move forward, hopefully in our present cultural uh, difficulties. May, may I hold your feet to the fire just a little bit on this one though, Tom, and, <laughs> okay. and, and ask that that is a very sensible position to take in a sense, whether you take a so-called complementarian or, or egalitarian view on this. But I suppose, I, I suppose what I'm interested to know is do you, do you believe that all of that being said that there is, as many people would say from scripture and uh, and so on, a, a sense in which the the male in a marriage does have some kind of leadership role that is not necessarily yeah. there for for the wife in in a marriage. Yes, that, that's that is a great question, and it's it's one which um, my wife and I have lived with for forty nine years, um, and and I, I think it's something that every couple has to wrestle with for themselves. Um, uh, of course, there are caricatures this way and that of the bullying husband or the henpecking wife or whatever it is and and one has to live with that and it's partly a personality thing that some people some women are naturally strong leaders some men are quite naturally very happy to live within a framework that somebody else is is drawing up and so it seems to me there is then a negotiation a navigation and i mean if one were meeting people pastorally, sooner or later one would want to ask about the way in which the roles that the husband and wife take are reflected in other aspects of their marriage, such as their sexual relationship, etc. Because all these things actually go together in a very sensitive way. And it may shift over time. There may be times when the husband is so worn out with what he's been doing that the wife actually has to take this particular decision right now and other times when the husband has to take the decision because the wife is so taken up with whatever it is. But ideally, ideally, the big decisions in life should be taken together. And if the husband needs to give a lead in some circumstances, then it seems to me there is something to be said for that. But the Ephesians 5 model is of the headship of Jesus being about Jesus giving up his very life for the church. And so there is a sense that the leadership one should expect from the Christian husband is from the Christian husband giving up his particular desires, hopes, whatever it is, because he wants to make things the best for this wonderful, lovely person to whom he is privileged to be married. Well, thank you, Tom, for taking some some tricky questions there, um, which I know uh, are obviously hotly debated, uh, both in wider and church circles. But I appreciate your sensitive handling of them. And and um, 
yes uh there's there's more to come from the podcast uh do make sure that uh, you you check back as well though uh for more on these issues especially as they relate to um the roles of women in church um to that podcast i mentioned at the beginning number six way back in our archive if you want more detailed discussion on that uh from tom and myself but for the moment tom thank you very much for another enlightening and really interesting edition of the show thank you very much good to be with you mm-hmm.